The winds of change are blowing, and it's easy to get lost and off track. Hi, I'm Renee Barabow, the practical shaman, Hay House author of Winds of Spirit, a wind whistler, and soul coat. This is a show for pioneers who want to learn to navigate the world with a chaotic spin awake. Welcome to the Practical Shaman podcast, where we talk about all things shamanic, and which tends to be practical. And because shamans were com- concerned with the community, the health of their livestock, the the health of their members. And so, so many topics can be included into this subject. And today I'm really excited to share Bridget Hopkins, who is a clarity coach devoted to helping people bring the clarity of the heart to the mind. With Soulful Awareness, Bridget guides clients to support their next phase of growth, drawing upon multiple healing modalities, including shamanic, practical Reiki, chakra wisdom, guided meditation, crystal therapy, and sound therapy. She has 350 hours of individual coaching experience and connects the community through writing and public service. And today we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, uh, Feathers of a Phoenix, an exploration of her own journey to draw meaning from her own personal experiences. Uh, you can find her book on Amazon, but you know we'll get we'll get to that um, <laughs> because it's quickly become one of my my favorite books. And I, I say that because I, I I'm often asked to read books, and I usually read a page or a chapter or two, and then I'm like, yeah, okay, it's not telling me anything I haven't already heard. But um, you have a style of writing that just, your metaphors, I, I'm just having metaphor <laughs> envy all since I've been reading your book. I mean, you just have a way, I mean, the testimony you gave about Omega, I mean, you just, in the way you write about even how you write, is just awe-inspiring. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us, so this book clearly is a combination of a lot of healing and a lot of personal self-growth. And we hear about it in your um, bio from the Reiki and all of those other things. But talk to, talk to us about the healing you had actually writing this book. Ooh, so much. So the reason why I began this endeavor is because I follow closely with the Toltec traditions. And one of the rites of passage is to write the story of your life. Mm-hmm. so that you can get more clarity about the illusions that I've been closely tied to. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and I said, okay, this is my target date that I'm going to finish this book. I'm not a professional writer. Whatever comes of this will come of this. And each day was a new, it was almost like taking a shamanic journey every day because I would go into these portals within myself that I didn't even know existed and really start to glean better insights about the stories I was telling, how they were harming me, what the actual benefit was, which was almost always for my shadow side, and how it was inhibiting me from taking forward emotion in my life. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stories in this book and and anyone who's been through any emotional trauma or emotional abuse or a mother just as as an experience of like all of a sudden having a baby mm-hmm. you know what i mean and you just describe it great so tell us you know that women just because they're designed to give birth doesn't mean that they're you know fully prepared to give birth so why don't you share about that 
that in yeah. your book and, and how, how that made you more aware of yourself as a mother. Right. So my husband was the one that always wanted to have a large family. And from the day we met, I said, I'm not built to have children. I have wide hips, but I do not have a strong heart. And I know that a lot is required of a parent. So I get the title of a mother, but to truly be a parent would require a, a level of presence that I didn't think I possessed at the time. So long story short, I did not use birth control. He didn't use any protection. And voila, we became parents. And that started with, it was almost like I was walking backwards in my wounds, but I, I wasn't conscious of it, but it was coming through in the way I was parenting. So the harder I tried to not be like my mother, the more and more reclined we became. And that is why <laughs> I was scared in the first place. I didn't want to face the truth that I had a lot of work to do to heal. And they brought it right to the surface for me. Okay, you cut in and out in that conversation. So I'm just going to kind of repeat it. That she mm -hmm. said the more she tried to not be like her mother, the more and more she realized that you were like your mother, but um, does that mean you were living in hotels again or motels or are you talking about an emotionally absent parenting style? It was both, ironically. Oh. My husband was in school at the time at Kent State University and when his um, degree was finalized, we had this uh, situation of impermanence. So we went into motel rooms and then we stayed with his parents and then from his parents we stayed with his grandmother. I stayed with my mom on and off. And so I was revisiting some of those old early experiences I had as a young child. But now I was taking our, you know, two month old baby with us. Mm. That's really interesting. I was pregnant and then he was with us, yeah. That's really interesting because in my own life, I have an older sister who's been super critical of my mom. I mean, I, there's been, you know, there was many years I was critical of my mother too until I realized that, you know, she was the mother who was birthing somebody who could write this book or your mm -hmm. mom was birthing somebody who could write this book. And all of a sudden the perspective changed. But over the years, all of the things I watched her, all of the things she was most critical about my mother about, um, she did to a bigger extent, you know, like leaving a daughter behind, you know, just things that that she couldn't ever see that she did too. And, and still to this day, um, has this, this illusion of what this mothering is. And mm -hmm. I think that cracking that illusion, what, what did you come to in the end of, you know, what is mothering? What is that illusion of mothering? What really do we get for a mother? My takeaway from revisiting my life with my mother is that it is never about the external presence in our life. It is about how well we can mother ourselves. That is what reflects in the relationship. It is not about her or me. It's about how she is to herself. And so that was my big takeaway and something that brings me so much peace because it completely shatters the idea of being selfish, hmm. right? A mother who takes good care of herself and her well-being is actually a parent. 
Yes, but let's, I want to, I want to skip around there. Don't, you yeah. know, let, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. <laughs> so, you know, drug addicts take really good care of their drug addictions. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that that means they're taking very good care of themselves. No. And so um, there's a fine line there between, you know, doing the best you can under the circumstances and really being there and being present and being available as a mother or as a parent. And I think that's one of the, the things I, I compared your book to anyone who's at home listening to the liars club by Mary Carr, which uh, I don't know if you've read that book, but if you haven't, you should, because it's, it's considered one of the literary, literary brilliance in memoir writing. And I know when I was writing uh, The Shaman Chef, How Cooking Saved My Life, you know, the every time I'd send it to the editor, she'd give me five more memoirs to read. And, and what that what that meant for me was the first time was the garbage dump. The second time was everyone else was okay. And the third time made the story way more universal. And did you find that in your own memoir writing? How many times did you rewrite this book? I didn't. So there were certain stories within the book that I rearranged, but the actual content itself, the only thing that I ever changed were grammatical errors. Wow. So yeah. you mean the writing came out this clear the first time? Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about the whole process is I've been in a memoir group for several, uh, it'll be second year this uh, January. Did you say two years? Two years, yeah. <laughs> and People, you, have to, you have to read this book to understand <laughs> what I'm talking about is, is, is probably one of the most raw, sheer, brilliant books that I've read in years, 10, 15 years. And, and, and I'm not saying that because you came and assisted me at Omega. I'm telling you this because this book will, will influence and, and impact many, many people. Do you know that? I didn't. Um, you know, my intention was really like, I needed to clear, I needed to clear the weight of this history in my life. Um, because I kept walking around with these stories and the delusions of where I came from and it was affecting me. Like it was affecting all of my relationships and predominantly with my children because I just kept seeing them from this fearful place of I don't want to create the same relationship that I grew up with. I can't even call what we had a relationship. Um, it was just so toxic. And yet I still love her. You know, so it, it just goes to show something about that bond that takes place, even if you don't fully bond. I had a loyalty to Faith that, I mean, she's gone and I still think about her and, and want to honor her. Well, I think you had a relationship. She, it looks, she, although you might have been going from place to place, she didn't leave you behind, did she? I don't, didn't see one, one experience in there where she actually left you, you know, behind when she moved on to a different place or did you leave that story out? Well, she never left me for long. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there was, I mean, there was, there was as much as she could connect, there was a certainly a connection there, you know, even if you felt like the, you know, the Versace handbag or something like that, or, right. you know, right. that that's kind of some probably more work you'll continue to do around that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy. I like that metaphor. 
I'm, I'm the metaphor queen, but I'm the, uh, I, I, I'm the queen of prepositional phrases. I mm -hmm. get onto a metaphor and I want to write three more. You just like, boom, this is like, mm -hmm. just like, I mean, I could open up to any page and probably find one. There was another part of this book that I really thought was a really kind of a brilliant uh, thing because you really look at your relationships with, you know, both feet in on the ground and jumping in and, and you talk about this, this really difficult time in your marriage about this mm -hmm. not getting a divorce, but a divorcing process. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to write a whole book about that, by the way, this idea <laughs> of like divorcing ourselves from the illusion of what a marriage is or, or how that works in our lives. So talk, I mean, I, I got the truth of the matter is, is I have about this many pages left, everyone, and I don't exactly want to put the book down because there's parts like I don't even really want to know how they end yet, and I, I want the book to continue. So, can you tell I like this book? Yes, yes. So, uh, I'm just letting it all soak in. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, let it soak in because one of the things about writing a, a Hay House book, and people always say, How'd you get picked? And they're like, I wrote something that hasn't been on the planet. Opposite of you, who you've wrote something that has been on the planet, and many people have written many memoirs but this is an exceptional memoir and and it's in your writing i think you're going to go on to be a, a, a amazing you know i think there's a lot more stories in there but tell us about this divorcing idea hmm. well i kept looking around for information about couples that face this you know it's it's a turning point it was a pivot point in our relationship and the way that we were relating with one another and everything I kept coming across was about finality, either, you know, moving back through the relationship and, you know, handling all of the wounding. And I didn't want to do that because we've tried that path and it hasn't worked. And we just kept getting more and more resentful of one another and more pain was building from trying to do these processes that didn't really feel aligned. And one day I said, you know, I don't want to leave him but I want to leave everything about him that I can no longer relate to. So he's changed and I have changed. And where can we begin to meet in the middle somewhere with these new senses of self? And it was just a random conversation with a friend of mine. And I said, you know, I think that we're, ha we're like, we're actually living a verb right now. I am divorcing the man that I married, but it's not the finality of a divorce. I'm just letting go. I'm choosing to surrender to whatever this is, this place that we're at, and I'm letting go of all of the stories about who he was supposed to be to me, who I was supposed to be to him, to give us a chance to have a new breath in our relationship because there was no more room. We were completely, you know, um, I sealed us out of any opportunity to grow together. That's interesting. You say I, mm -hmm. that I sealed him out. Mm -hmm. So you had suffocated the relationship? Is that what mm -hmm. you're... Yeah. And so what did the divorcing process look like? Well, so just as in a regular divorce, you have to sit down and start going through all of the things, the assets that you're going to separate and who's going to be responsible for this and who's taking ownership of that and what are you going to sell off? And so I was looking at that from an emotional standpoint. So if we're not ready to divide our property, say, because we have three children, and, and my husband didn't even really know that a lot of this was going on, which was 
kind of the uh, the joke in the middle of all of this, right? So that's why I say I, because it was a personal experience for me. Um, so throughout that process, it was just really looking at instead of the physical house, what occupies the house? You know, what do we bring into this house every day? And starting to separate that, like what's his and what is mine? And I can take responsibility for me, but I'm not going to take responsibility for him anymore. And so just doing division of assets in that way, but from an emotional standpoint. So that was really the beginning of that whole divorce thing, if you will, was getting clarity about where I was too entangled in the mess and starting to separate myself from that a little bit. So you made a list of your assets, of what you brought to the relationship. Mm -hmm. Did mm -hmm. you make a list of his assets of what mm -hmm. he brought to the relationship? Yeah, which was really hard because I wanted to keep blaming him. <laughs> <laughs> what a, yeah, that's not being responsible, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great couples relationship uh, group you might want to offer is, you know, a divorcing, a divorcing of the illusion and, and things. Mm -hmm. well, I, I, that's where I saw your next book going, actually, mm -hmm. with me into this process of coupling and uncoupling in the dynamics of staying together mm -hmm. and i know you i mean i know it's a little personal but you know you even in this process you even separated for a bit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah we did and but now you're back together is that mm -hmm. that's good yeah. so now he went through his own divorcing process and it was so encouraging because we can never make another person change. You know, I tried. I tried that with him. I wanted him to be this perfect model of a man that lived in the image of the father I never had. So imagine that. This real life person in front of me has to match an illusion of a relationship I never had, of a man I never knew. So I put my father on a pedestal and nothing that my husband did would ever be good enough because he wasn't this ideal image. That's really, that's difficult for him. But so, you know, he separated himself physically from the home so that he could start getting clarity and unraveling his own stories. And it was really a beautiful process to watch and encouraging because Sometimes, you know, we've been together 20 years and we haven't been apart very much. So sometimes that physical distance really brings clarity quickly. And when he came back, we established four new pillars of how we want to relate to one another and what we want this relationship to function off of. So love is not even one of the pillars, which I think is so interesting because that's usually why people get married because they love each other so much. And that love idea is like a crazy thing because I love people who I wouldn't want to marry and I wouldn't want to live with and you know, <laughs> right. hardly want to go to dinner with sometimes. <laughs> exactly. If you yeah. want to get really clear. That, yeah. um, so, so was this divorcing process? So everyone, she was on Oprah about how relationships and how families work. And so was this divorcing process going on during your... Uh, no. Yeah. So so there was like an unaware, when you were really being there on this relationship, there was an unawareness still? or mm -hmm. We were still very much in the shroud of, you know, we're going to live by society standards and we're just going to be, you know, this ideal couple and these model parents and super duper codependent. 
So everything in the relationship, which I talk about a lot in that chapter in the book, is how to start beginning, like beginning the process of separating from codependency. And it's painful. It was very painful. Our relationship worked really well when I just, you know, towed the line and stayed dependent on his wishes and likes and preferences. <laughs> we had a great relationship, but I was miserable. Well, I could see where that would have happened because when, you know, you got married young and um, I mean, it looked, it looked like there was going to be some stability here after, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to take a minute away from the, the reading you're going to do when you pick up Feathers of a Phoenix because it, you'll be, it's a page turner. It's like, where are they going to be tomorrow? <laughs> so, so, but to, to understand that when, when we come together from a place of brokenness, and then we do start to grow. I mean, I know that, you know, I have a really close uh, friend that we've been friends for almost 25 years. And it was a lot easier to blame her for everything that went wrong in our, in our life together when to see really at a lot of levels, and even in her emotional unavailability, she was really more available than I was. Mm. You know, I'm a runner and, you know, I'm an avoidant and I'm all of those things. And so, you know, I'm still perfect. <laughs> right. So how do you show up perfectly imperfect in a relationship and really still get your needs met and your desires met and without, you know, suffocating yourself or the relationship? And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's what this whole, this whole process is. Mm -hmm. What about your children? Ooh, what would you like to know? How do they feel about being written about in a, uh, in a book where their mother showed herself as less than perfect? Oh, right. Well, luckily they live with me, so they know more about me than I probably do. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a lot of openness in our household. So we, we have tough conversations and we share from a place of earnestness all the time. When I told them that I was writing the book, their biggest question was why? Why is it important to you? And I told him because I really need to understand what the purpose was of my upbringing. Why did it, why did it have to be that way? And does it have to keep hurting? You know, and I really wanted to uncover that. And so they were fine with it. The only thing they took issue with was I originally wrote with all of their, their first names. And that was a privacy issue that they felt like their privacy was being violated. So I went back in and changed all the names of my family members for privacy sake. And now they were fine with it. And they came to the book signing and they were very supportive and really excited. And, you know, the thing that, um, especially my daughter, so, you know, the Feathers of the Phoenix has a lot to do about me and my mom. So this whole mother-daughter relationship and the mother wounding and, you know, when my daughter came into the world, she had her own story just on entry point. And, so I'm always really uh, curious about, you know, where am I acting from that place of wounding? Where am I acting from a place of presence? And, you know, she came up to me when the book was done and she was like, I am really proud of you. Mm. That was a big accomplishment and you, you didn't stop. You kept going. So I showed her that we can do really hard things that are uncomfortable, but they have, you know, there is an end to it and there's a reason for it. And, and so that's all really good. 
Like she's my toughest critic. So she hasn't read the book, but she was proud of the accomplishment. Yeah. I'm not quite sure if my mother's read my book yet either, but I know she was so excited when, you know, all of her friends and strangers were at the uh, South, you know, the Cape Elizabeth library when I was just up there and, and she knows that it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Doesn't quite understand it, but it's not, you know what, maybe she'll read it at the right time. I am going to send it to my niece mm -hmm. because I think that she will really benefit because uh, she was raised by an addict mother as well. And, you know, there's just a lot that goes along with that. And that's just not the typical, and, and there is no typical upbringing, but, you know, being in active addiction so have you experienced any active addiction in your own life or is it more the codependent part of yourself? Um, I would say yes to both. I, for me, it's food. Food has been my drug of choice. And, you know, in my earlier years, it was alcohol and, you know, men that just weren't really a good idea. So those were my, <laughs> those were my addictions. And, and the food one is the one that I'm still actively working through. Yeah. And I think you just were talking about a big breakthrough you just had with that, uh, mm -hmm. with the book finishing. Yes. Yeah. Well, Can I share about the, that? Or? Sure. And through the work at Omega, it was through our wind work that week. And your, um, your astute skills at sniffing yeah. out. <laughs> I know. I could have been one of those morale hunters. <laughs> yes, exactly. So... Throughout the week at Omega, um, Renee kept pointing out that I was hiding. And at first I thought, you know, how can I still be hiding when I've spent almost three years actively working on my shadows? I mean, hardcore. And even the first day I stepped into the Ford Institute, that was the very first shadow that came up was invisible. So, you know, three years later, I'm still working on it, clearly. And... It was a little destabilizing, but I know it to be true, so it was fine. And as we went through the windwork process, you know, we had to do the drawing of our houses through our shamanic journey. And my lines were very neutral and almost faint, almost non-existent. Invisible. Invisible, yes. And, you know, then we did, um, as we were doing our prayer flags, I pulled out of the group, you know, in that that time I felt like I was pulling back because I wanted everyone else since I was the assistant to have the opportunity to do the work they needed to do. And we were, you know, there were a couple pieces missing and I just didn't want to, you know, throw myself in for that. But then when I thought about it, that was symbolic of so many times I've taken a step backward when it was an opportunity for me to be more firmly in place. And so that was another example of the invisibility, which you called me on, and I couldn't see it at the time. And after the whole process, you know, we were doing our wind walk, a lot of information came through that day because I had a very powerful question that I, I offered to the wind to bring me the information back on. And because I experienced early trauma, I started putting on weight when I was about 14. You know, that was right when my, my boobs came in and my buttocks filled out and my hips were a little wider. And I was very shapely and getting a lot more attention than I wanted from the opposite sex. And so I started putting on weight and kept putting it on and putting it on. And at one point, I was well over 300 pounds. And so anybody that showed interest in me at that weight, 
they were showing me that they were safe, okay? Mm -hmm. But what I never considered was, was I safe for myself, right? I kept making it about everyone else in the outside world, but I was not a trustworthy steward of my own temple. I was not keeping a clean house. And so when I left Omega, I, you know, have been holding that powerful question even longer and, and doing more work. And now I find that the reason I hide is because of the weight that I've put on. So what was originally keeping me, quote unquote, safe has now actually created this um, invisibility shroud that I'm carrying because now I'm embarrassed of the relationship that I've held with myself. And, you know, it's not <laughs> invisible to anyone else. And, it, you know, no, now it's no longer invisible to me. And so that's where I'm at with that is where can my action begin to take place right now because I can't continue to do the same things I've done. I, I'm not hiding it anymore. So that's where I'm at right now is just really reevaluating how can I start to support myself more, um, more harmoniously. Hopefully you're going to join us in the fall windwork class because we go into some really good tools about that. And um, this will be coming out before we, I do two classes a year, the fall and the spring online classes. And, and then I'll have a yearly gathering as well. And I hope you'll come back to that too. Thank well, you. we're about out of time. I want people to join in later to check out Feathers of a Phoenix, also to check out Winds of Spirit. Mm -hmm. Because this wind work is, is, as she just said, it's like, yeah, I'm a good snoofer. You know, I could have been a hound dog. But the, the wind work, it, it, it's a direct relevatory experience for yourself. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is learn a few simple tools. And I'm not a guru. I'm not an, you know, I mean, I have a couple of tools and I've done a lot of healing, but I, I, I put my faith in the wind and, mm -hmm. and it's really powerful work as you just heard. Well, can I, ooh, I was yes. going to say, can I quickly share? Yes, you're a sniffer and, and you have tools and whatnot, but you do have a very strong resonance with the wind and the wind brings your students to you because I was in the Dominican Republic at the beginning of this year getting pummeled by the wind nonstop for three days and I was so irritated by the end of that trip and I thought, what do you want of me? And the wind was very specific that I was soon going to meet my teacher to learn how to walk with the wind and not against it. And three weeks later, I got your email for your spring mastery class. Great. Well, the wind led, led me right to you. And that's where I am in your book about when you're being pummeled by the winds. I think that's, I haven't read more. Um, all right. So one final thought you want to leave people with, where can they meet you? Where can they get your book? All of those things. Oh, oh, self-promotion. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I can be found at BridgetHopkins.com. That's my website. Um, Feathers of a Phoenix is at BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com, and Lulu.com. And you can also connect with me through Facebook or Instagram. And just reach out if you have any questions or anything that you would like for me to know. I'm happy to interact. So, And I'm holding space that she is not going to be invisible anymore because when she walks into the room, she's got this huge presence 
and spirit, you know, tall, the whole thing. And, and as you know, she deserves to be seen. All right, this is the Practical Shaman podcast. Uh, please subscribe when you're listening so you can be, you know, hear everyone. And every week we come to you and it's very exciting to be here. And thank you very much. Thank you.